Okay, hello everyone. Today we've got a very interesting topic. We're going to be talking environment and fertility. A few weeks ago, I was reading an interesting、uh, newsletter from Harvard, and they were talking about how the environment has our impact on our fertility and sexual health. I'm a contact the person being interviewed in this article is uh, Carmen uh, Messerlian. She's got a background in public health and epi-、uh, epidemiology from Yale. If I'm correct,、uh, she'll fill in the gaps. And currently, she's directing the Seeds Program at Harvard Chan School of Public Health, which stands for the Scientific Early Life Environmental Health and Development Program. So I'm super interested and privileged、uh, that you're here today, Carmen. So could you briefly fill in the gaps of the things I didn't talk about you? I'm insulted by the Yale comment, but I'm not from Yale. I'm from McGill University in Montreal, Canada,、ah. and from Harvard University, which is where I've done my training. But that's cool. We like Yale as well, but we're from Harvard. <laughs> We like Harvard better.、Um, I'm a professor of epidemiology and environmental health at the Harvard Chan School of Public Health. My focus is on reproductive epidemiology. I trained at McGill University. I did a PhD in epidemiology, where I focused on infertility. And、um, then I was recruited to Harvard University to study how the environment impacts infertility, and I've been at Harvard since 2014, embarking on an enormously exciting, fascinating journey on how the environment, defined very broadly to include the social, built, and natural environments, how they impact fertility, eggs and sperm, embryos, implantation, fertilization, pregnancies, miscarriage risk. Live births, preterm birth, and adverse outcomes in children till adolescence and beyond. So, for me, fertility and reproduction is a life course event. We are born to reproduce. It's what we come on this planet to do as human beings, and we're driven biologically and genetically for successful reproductive outcomes. And my job at Harvard is to understand what causes issues around that. So, how can we understand what? Are some of the things and factors in our space that can influence how we reproduce as people? Okay, thank you for that. And one word which some viewers might be questioning is, what does ep-、uh, epidemiology mean? Because that's quite a, a tough word to pronounce. So you might be familiar more with epidemiology since the pandemic. Up until the pandemic, every time I would tell someone I was an epidemiologist, they think I was studying the epidermis, which is skin. <laughs> Not related, but the epidemic—the word epidemic—is where epidemiology originates from, and it's a—it's a fairly developed field. It's been around for several hundred years. In fact, um, 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 John Snow from London, England, was the first to sort of identify the field、uh, around cholera. So we study the environment. We study、um, diseases in the population. That's very, very broad. We study the determinants and the distribution of diseases in the population. So instead of looking at a patient, patient equals one person, we look at aggregates, aggregates of people. So we look at populations, groups of people, and we try to make inferences on understanding the etiology of diseases in the population. Etiology meaning the causes of disease. So why does someone get a heart attack? Versus another person who doesn't.、Um, why does someone get cancer and the other person, you know, per, why does one group of people get cancer and another group of people are, you know, cancer-free? What are the causes of cancer in the group of people that are experiencing, let's say, breast cancer or infertility or heart disease or Alzheimer's? So we study the diseases and how they happen to occur on a population level, and then we make inferences 
using that evidence that we developed to try to guide policy, guide public health strategy, guide education, um, and guide people's behavior change and how they can impact their health. So that's the public health part of epidemiology is the public health strategies that go with the evidence that we generate as epidemiologists. Well, I think that's such a great answer. Yeah. And then moving back to the, the SEED program, you mentioned that it's looking at how the environment affects sexual health. Uh, and then you mentioned the different types of the environment. So the natural, the built and the social environments. So what do they exactly mean? Good, good. So, so our eggs and our sperm are there when, um, when we are born. And in fact, they're there in, 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 in um, our bodies when our mothers have us as babies. So in, in a fetus, your ovaries and testes get formed, right? So one of the things that's really fascinating is how the environment gets transferred across time through generations. And I have a really cool figure that I don't have to show you here, but I'll explain to you. So if you think of a mother and a pregnant mother and the fetus inside that pregnant mother, okay? So you have a mother, there's a fetus inside that pregnant mother, a girl fetus, let's say a, a, a female, a female fetus. That female fetus has eggs in her. Okay. Cause her belt, the baby is being formed as a female. So she has ovaries that get formed in the fetus. Those eggs become you and me. Okay. So your grandmother and your grandfather, their exposures, their environmental exposures, the environment again is defined very broadly to include the social environment, which is the environment that your grandparents were exposed to. So how much stress they had, if they lived during war, if they lived during famine, if they lived during, um, if they had a home that had dysfunction and abuse, if they ate well, if they ate poorly, um, the types of factories they might've been exposed to, like a grandpa, if he worked in a factory or grandma, if she worked in a factory, those exposures impacted your grandmother's eggs, which then produced your mother, which then in your mother had the eggs that formed you. So the environment can be transferred across three generations from what your grandparents were exposed to. And my job at Harvard is to look at how those environments in your grandma and grandpa, your mom when she was pregnant with you, and then you as a person now trying to conceive how those environments impact your chances of having successful reproduction. And again, the environment is the social environment. Like I said, the types of um, Social environments is anything to do with relationships, with home environments that include um, social space that you engage in. So your workplace, your family, those are social environments. The built environment is concrete things that we're exposed to in our everyday lives that are built in factories, in manufacturing plants. Like my cell phone is something that's from the built environment. This is covered with a PVC. See this cover on this iPhone? It's a PVC cover. So PVC is polyvinyl chloride. And so I touch this all day because I'm on my phone obsessed with it. I check for emails and texts from my children. And I'm, this is a built environment. So I'm touching this and there's transdermal absorption through my skin into my bloodstream of the phthalates that make this PVC cover. Okay. That's the built environment. There's lots of examples. This is a ceramic cup, but I could be drinking out of a plastic cup, which allows water to be contaminated with the plastic that the cup's in. And I would drink it. Let's say you go to coffee, you go to Cafe Nero or some cafe in, in England or in Europe, and you get a styrofoam cup or you get a plastic cup and there's hot liquid in it. Then there's a plastic lid that goes on top and then you drink out of it. So that's the built environment. Those items are part of the built manufactured environment. And the chemicals and the exposures to the coffee or the beverage can impact your body. Those chemicals get absorbed into your body through the oral route and can impact your cells 
all parts of your body, but I'm focused on the reproductive processes. So the organs that help you make eggs and sperm, the organs and how they function um, to reproduce the baby if you're pregnant, that's the built space. Now there's the natural environment. The natural environment is the air we breathe, the water we drink, the food we are exposed to. That's natural. Those are things in the natural environment. So the air we breathe, we know that air pollution can impact our health, can impact my lungs, can impact my risk of infection. If my lungs don't work well, then I can't breathe well. They can affect uh, my, my risk for asthma if I'm, if I'm a woman or if I'm a child. Um, the dust in the environment can 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 inhale, you can inhale particles in the dust that have chemicals in it, like perfluorinated chemicals, PFAS, phthalates, um, flame retardants. We've detected these in dust. So the air we breathe can um, provide um, an exposure source through breathing, through inhalation into our bodies of these chemicals. That's the natural environment. In addition to that, we can think of food. Food's natural. It grows in, in the earth. We can get fruits and vegetables. Those fruits and vegetables might have pesticides in them. So now we consume a really juicy apple and we think it's healthy, but it might be laden with pesticides. And so I study how those pesticides in the natural environment or other chemicals through the food we eat. Meat is a source of exposure to perfluorinated chemicals, PFAS chemicals, and phthalates. We eat the meat it gets bioaccumulated in the, in, the, in the cow or in the fish. Mercury, for example, gets bioaccumulated into the fish. And then we eat the fish and we absorb the mercury in our bodies. The water is the same thing. So water can be contaminated with all kinds of stuff. It comes out of our pipes and it could have chemicals in it that could be harmful. Some of the chemicals we put in the water, like fluoride, other chemicals are there because they're naturally occurring in the water. You know, when you process water in raw sewage water in a, in a water plant for city water, the city puts chemicals in there that puts chlorination to, to get rid of the bacteria. The byproducts of that chlorination is something that I study and how it impacts our health. Um, and these chemicals can be endocrine disrupting. And these exposures can be endocrine disrupting. Endocrine is the endocrine system is the hormonal systems in your body that can include your thyroid, your ovaries, your testes, um, your, your adrenal glands. These are all your kidneys. These are all adrenal um, these are all hormonal organs that produce hormones that regulate our systems, our organs and our bodies. And that can be disrupted by these chemicals. And my focus is really how it disrupts reproductive health, how it disrupts your chances of getting pregnant, your chances of having a healthy pregnancy, and how your baby's born, when it's born, and how healthy it is after it grows up, and how it reaches puberty, how healthy is it around puberty, how does it grow up to be pregnant, you know, to get pregnant and father a baby if it's an adult. So those are the processes that I look at. And it's across the life course from the egg and sperm in your grandparents to your mother, to you, and then to your future baby. And that's what the seed program is about. That's crazy because I didn't know that it goes beyond my generation. I thought it just depends on only on what's happening to me right now in the present moment. Like well, that's great. So let's just put you as the grandpa right now. Okay, so you're the grandpa. So Patrick, you, you married, let's just say you are, and you're having a baby with your female partner. And you're the grandpa in this scenario now, right? So you're in an office. I can see you're in an office. You're breathing air. You're drinking out of a cup. You might have exposures to your home in your apartment that you rent. There could be lead in the pipes. You could be drinking water. Your diet could be rich in some nutrients, but depleted in others. You could have a lot of stress because you're you know, commuting for two hours a day. You're not exercising. Maybe you smoke pot. Maybe you drink alcohol. Maybe you don't take good care of your body. Now you go to have a baby. And your partner's doing the same thing. Now, your exposures, your exposome, which is what we call the totality of exposure in a human. So the social, natural, and built environment is the exposome. 
your exposome is influencing your sperm and how you produce sperm, the quality of the sperm. And a pregnancy for a man, when he contributes sperm to the pregnancy, it's not just contributing the 23 chromosomes, which is the genetic material to make the baby, because you put 23 chromosomes from the male, the sperm carries 23 chromosomes. It's a haploid cell, so it only has half the number of genes. And then you have the female egg, which has 23 chromosomes, which is half the number of genes that we have. We put them together and we make 46, okay? But the fascinating thing about this field is that we're not just contributing genetic material to that offspring, to that baby, to that embryo. There's epigenetic cargo that's in the sperm that registers information from the environment and translates information to the genome on how that genome gets expressed. And that informs the pregnancy, not just the genetic material, but the epigenetic cargo in sperm, which is histone modification, DNA methylation, microRNAs, different parts of the equation. Your sperm is complex. It's got hidden secrets in there to tell your sperm how to behave when it meets an egg. It's not just genetics, there's epigenetics involved. And that is how we get the gene and the environment to interact to produce an offspring, a baby. And the same thing happens in the woman. So what you're doing right now as a grandpa, you have a baby with your partner and your, baby, your partner's pregnant now with a female, with a little girl. And that little girl in your partner's tummy has eggs in it. That baby, that fetus has eggs, the ovaries are formed. Those eggs will become your grandchild. Your grandchild was influenced by what you're doing right now. Because wow. you're contributing huh. sperm to make that baby that then forms eggs in her. And then if that little baby becomes, if your, if your daughter ends up having a boy offspring, your grandson will have been influenced by your exposures today as a man and by your partner's exposures as a woman. It's both. So fertility is a couple-based thing. It's not a man thing. It's not a woman thing. We've been in the society where we focus so much energy on reproduction on the females, all about the woman and what she's drinking, what she's eating and her diet, her stress. And, and it's all about the pregnancy. We're focusing on when the woman gets pregnant, she's got to stop smoking. She's got to stop drinking. She's got to start eating better. She's got to lose weight, gain weight. All these rules and responsibilities on the female on how to reproduce, how to make this baby healthy. But the secret and the mystery and the fascinating, curious thing about it is that the preconception window is the really important window. Prenatal window is important too, but by the time most women find out they're pregnant, they're 10 weeks, eight weeks, 12 weeks, sometimes longer. By then, a lot of that information where the eggs and sperm meet has already been formed and there's, there's little impact. All the organs are formed, the limbs are formed by eight, 10 weeks. A lot of the critical features, all the anatomy of the baby, the embryo, is really programmed in the first 10 weeks of life, 10 weeks of gestation. Many women don't know they're pregnant then, so you kind of lose all that opportunity to make a healthier baby. So my focus and my work is on really guiding couples to be healthy before they get pregnant. What can they do in their day-to-day -day lives to make their bodies healthier so that their sperm and their eggs are optimized for natural conception so they can have healthy babies and healthy offspring. Their grandchildren will also be benefiting from those choices that you make today. Okay, wow. So it's very easy to get a little bit negative based on all these exposures you told me about. Like these exposures, um, if I'm correct, they're known as um, in, in, like environmental toxicants. Yeah, yeah. So they're not toxins, they're not environmental, toxins. environmental what... toxicants. Yes, exactly. Or hormone, destru hormone destructing chemicals. Yeah, so basically to define it better is, and I call them environmental chemicals or environmental toxicants, they're synthetic synthetic 
chemicals in the environment. They're not, they're not made in our bodies. They're not endogenous. Our bodies aren't making them. These are things from the way the world has been built through industrialized countries and all across the globe now because of changes across hundreds of years of we making things, right? We're not just growing our food in our little backyards and our little plot of land and have complete control over that little space. We live in a globalized society. Industrial revolution changed how things get produced. We have plastic produced in the billions of tons per year, billions. That plastic gets into the water systems, gets into our food, is used in everything we are exposed to on a day-to-day -day basis. So it's natural to understand that these, these built things end up in the natural space, they end up in the air, they end up in our food, they, we have direct contact with them because we're touching them and we're exposing ourselves to them. Um, they're environmental chemicals, they harm our bodies in different ways. They have an endocrine effect, that's what they've been most known for is the endocrine effect, that they impact how we make testosterone, how we make estrogen, how our bodies, how our, a woman's psych, menstrual cycle, how she ovulates, um, it can impact your thyroid hormone. These are things we've identified. But in addition to the endocrine effects, the really sad reality is it's much broader than that in terms of the effects. We know through my research and others that they impact our immune system, the level of inflammation in our bodies. They impact our neuro, our, the, the, the brain and, and how our body's neuro, neurotransmitters get made. Um, they impact when a baby's being formed, the quality of the neuro development in the child's brain can be impacted by a mother's exposure to these chemicals. They're epigenetic toxicants, they're gen genotoxicants, and they um, are obesogenic and they affect how we metabolize sugars and how we metabolize fats. They have widespread effects across the body and they harm human health. And it's sad because we're widely ubiquitously, ubiquitously exposed, everybody. There's nobody on this planet that's not. We, we've, there's studies in my people in, you know, in the Amazon, far away where they have no contact with industrial spaces. And we go and we measure their urine and their blood and what do we find? The same chemicals that are in my body, my blood living in Boston, Massachusetts, okay? And the reason for that is, is that the air circulates, there's tornadoes, there's air circulation, there's water circulation, the oceans bring things and the lakes bring things and the rivers bring things and the air that gets circulated brings things. So we, we have no control over how nature transports these chemicals, right? And they end up everywhere. So that brings you to your question. It sounds so devastating. What are we going to do now? There's, everybody's exposed, right? So there are things we can do. We don't have control over everything. We don't have control over air pollution, quality, you know, the quality of the air in, in London, England, or the quality of air in New York City. That's set by government, the guidelines for how much parts per million is tolerable and where the limits should be. We don't have that much control over policies on carbon emissions. That's our government's job. And my job in some of the work that I do is to recommend and to work with the EPA in places that help set standards for what chemicals should be in our water, our food, and our space. But as an individual, we don't have control over that. But we have control over the things that we do in our day-to-day -day life, where and what we eat, how we, what we do to our bodies on a day-to-day -day basis, the kind of food we eat is a big source, nutrition, the diet that we have, the products that we use on our skin, in our hair, on our lips, on our bodies, the shaving cream, the deodorant, the cologne, products are laden with chemicals, personal care products are. 
and what we put in our homes. Like I've got lavender right here. It smells pretty. Um, it does have some endocrine disrupting effects, but I don't have a, I don't have one of those things in my wall that odorizes the room, like a Febreze or one of those, I don't know what you guys call them. I, I don't have them and I've never bought them, but they're little plugins that you put in the wall and they emit odor to make the room smell nice. Those have chemicals in them. They're laden with chemicals. You buy dish soap. Okay. You're using dish soap. Are you going to use the one that has scent and color to it? That has chemicals in it because to make it, to give those products their, 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 their properties, the, the companies that produce them use chemicals to adhere the scent and the color. Phthalates, for example, use phthalates to adhere the scent and the color to the soap. So it smells nice and it looks pretty because it's pink or yellow or green. Those have chemicals. You go to wash your dishes and you spend 30 minutes washing your dishes by hand. Guess what? Your hands are absorbing. Through dermal contact, you're getting soap into your skin and you don't rinse your hands very well. You go off, you dry them because your phone rings or something. And now you, the soap is stuck on your hands and it absorbs into your bloodstream. And then you go to pick up your food, maybe an apple. And now you're eating your apple. And now it's going through not only your skin, but through your mouth. And you can imagine the millions of points that this happens in a given week, but you have choices to make in the products you bring into your home. You have a choice on every choice. Every time you buy something, you have a choice. You have a choice to buy less. That's the first thing. Don't bring things into your space. Buy I've got this because I'm a klutz and I drop my bloody phone constantly and I've broken them and they cost hundreds of dollars to replace and I don't have the money to replace them. So I get a plastic thing to protect it. Not my first choice, but companies aren't making ones that are by, that are not PVC. This is PVC. They make, you know, they should make green chemistry so that there's a cover that's plastic light made out of green chemistry, made out of cellulose, made out of other, um, agents that can provide the properties that I need, which is protection for my phone that doesn't have the chemicals, but there's not enough drive from consumers to make companies build those kinds of products. So us and the generation of your listeners, critical consumer group, because you guys have the power to change purchasing. Purchasing is what happens to companies. They listen to people in their 20s because you guys are going to be purchasers for 20, 30, 40 years. So if you start saying, I'm not buying the PVC, I want a cellulose-based one that still has a protection because I don't want those chemicals in my body, those are the powerful things that we could do as young people to make better choices. So products you purchase, um, things that you put on your body, things that you put in your home, the soaps and the the, the solutions that you use to clean your house, for example, Um the types of stuff you use in your bathroom and your kitchen to clean your environment, all that goes into your air, but also goes down into the sink. It goes into the water stream. It gets brought back into the water that you drink in the city, right? So those chemicals like Clorox or bleach or any of that stuff ends up in the water, which then ends up back into your water when you drink it. It goes down the drain. It goes back in your water, right? So they can't filter all these things out. Um, so there are things you could do. The food that you eat and the products that you bring into your home are the two biggest ones that you can have an impact on. The clothing, clothing is also a source of exposure. So if you have like clothing that's um, waterproof, the waterproof nature of that, it's not by magic that it's waterproof or stainproof or wrinkle-proof, right? You have to think about how does a company make a shirt that's wrinkle-proof and waterproof and stain-proof and all these factors, all these features that they're selling they're adding chemicals into the product to prevent them from being stain resistant, to make them stain resistant. So the chemical industry is a multi-billion dollar industry. 
Um, high production volume chemicals, there's tens of thousands of them on the market today. High production means they're made in more than 1 million tons per year of that chemicals produced and cycled into the environment, cycled in everything, everything we are in contact with. So the foam mattress that you're sleeping on has flame retardants in it. The carpet on your floor that's stain resistant has chemicals in it. The veneers that you put on your floor to make them shiny has chemicals too. Right, so many sources of exposure. You don't have control over how your house is built because you bought it or rented it, but you have control about things that you buy. And that's where the power is for young people, is the purchasing power that you have, the consumer power. It's gonna make a difference and influence. The more education we have to young people, the more you guys will start saying, like, we're done buying this crap. We don't want it in our house anymore. We want a sofa that has no flame retardants in it. So you're gonna start putting unknown pressure to the system when you shop at West Elm or whatever, Ikea, and you say, no, I don't want the sofa that's got flame retardants. Give me the sofa that doesn't have flame retardants in it. Do you have one on, you know, on the floor room, on the showroom? I would like to see it. Those are the things that will trickle upwards. So they're what we call bottom-up bottom up mechanisms. There's top-down mechanisms, which are policy and government action and, you know, regulation of water pollution and air pollution, what chemicals are allowed to be, you know, circulating. Those are top-down but what's more powerful is the bottom up, the people and the pressure and the consumer and educating them, helping them understand that um, there's ways of limiting our exposure and improving our, our health. Okay, and then with regards to uh, purchasing power, what could someone do who is um, sort of less economically advantaged and cannot afford, for example, to pay for like organic? Yeah, that's always a very good question. So when I say choice, you're right, the choice is not equal. I have choices that someone else doesn't and other people have choices that I can't make, right? So it's all based on economics and financial means and education. Those are big features and big factors in how much choice we have to regular, regulate our environment. If I'm a poor woman with three children living below, um, below the poverty line and I'm living in an apartment that's got mouse infestation and smoke, you know, secondhand smoke coming through the walls, I have no control over that. That's the only rent I can pay for, subsidized, and that's all I get. Um, I have limited choice. So that requires, unfortunately, more strategic um, investment by governments and, um, and groups of uh, people that can make an impact for people that are very disadvantaged that need support in this space. But if you have more challenges in economics, there's what I always say to everyone is harm minimization. Reduce your risk in any place you can. One less thing per day is one less thing per day. Two less things per day is two less things a day. Start somewhere. It's like, you know, when you're exercising, they say just take mm -hmm. 100 steps today. 100 is better than zero and 200 is better than 100. So start somewhere. Start swapping out your products. So can't afford to replace everything in your house, but I'm going to switch out the soaps. Every soap in this house from now on when I go to buy it, the hand soap, the dish soap, the laundry soap, um, the bath soap, I'm going to switch it to something that's non-toxic, no no scent, no color. One of these products that are, you know, eco-friendly with no phthalates and phenols is what we say, no parabens. That's economically, they're usually about priced very competitively. In fact, sometimes they're cheaper. They put them on discount. There's brands that are known to have less chemicals in them and they're usually at par. So there's one covered. So next time you go to the grocery store, when you run out of the soap, instead of buying your usual brand, buy the brand that has low exposure to these chemicals. Swap out one product every, every single time you run out of something. Um, chemicals that you use to clean your home, same thing, swap it out. 
Those are big exposure sources. Um, fruits and vegetables, if you can't afford to buy organic, or if you can only afford to buy one kind of organic fruit or vegetable per week, pick the ones that we know have the highest, you know, the highest concentration of pesticides in them. And there's a list called the Dirty Dozen that people can look up. And the Dirty Dozen, like strawberries is one of them, for example. So you love strawberries and you can, you know, there's 50 cents difference between organic and not get the organic ones because that's a high source of exposure to strawberries. And you're only swapping out one thing. So you don't have to do the whole gamut. But if you start adding these things up over time, they start to change your overall burden of exposure. So after a couple of weeks and a couple of months and a couple of years, suddenly you're like in a home like mine, which is mostly non-toxic as much as I can. So in my kitchen, I have zero plastic, zero. I don't use plastic in my kitchen. I don't microwave anything unless it's in glass. In fact, I've never had a microwave until very recently, but I don't use my microwaving anything in plastic is a very good way of getting chemicals exposed to you. So there you go. Stop microwaving food in plastic, put it in glass, um, store your food in ceramic or metal or glass. Um, one big one is a hard one, especially I'm prone to this one because I've got two teenage kids and they like takeout food. So we got pizza yesterday. Um, or maybe it was the day before, um, because we had guests over and we got takeout pizza, pizza box, takeout food, takeout food's a huge, huge source of exposure to these chemicals. Cause think about the food, first of all, it's fairly processed, right? So the more processed the food, the higher the concentration of these chemicals, the less processed the food, the lower, the, the lower, the chemical concentration of these things that we're talking about. So go back to the basics of cooking use natural whole ingredients as much as you can. So instead of buying canned beans, guess what? It's cheaper to buy the whole bean bottle, the, the whole bag of hard beans that you got to keep overnight in soda. Guess what? They are a little longer and a little bit more time, but they're not going to be in a BPA line can, BPA is bisphenol A, and it's cheaper. So there's ways we need to go back to some of the old fashioned ways of doing things. And there are things that you could do. There are things that we can all do. There are small baby steps towards harm minimization, risk reduction. A tiny bit over time is better than nothing at all. And a tiny bit over time incrementally becomes a bigger thing in the, in the longer time. So that's my messaging to people in general. Okay, so the goal is not perfection, but just gradual improvement through yeah, adjusting your... Yeah, just like your steps, you're going to or quitting smoking. It's the same thing. You're smoking 12 cigarettes a day. It's hard to go to zero, but guess what? Go to 11. That's one less per day. And do that for a month or two and then go to 10 and then nine. You just gradually fade things out. So you start adopting new habits and then they become easy to do. And it's not A, so expensive and B, so jarring to your environment. I can't go and take every plastic piece out of my kitchen right now. If you have a kitchen that's filled with plastic costs money, but you know, your spatula needs replacement because it's getting old. That plastic spatula, toss it in the garbage and get a wooden one or a metal one. Much better for your health because you're putting it on a high hot fry pan. That plastic with the fry pan, flipping your egg or your bacon and that plastic is touching that heat and going into your food. Another one is, you know, the pans and pots that we use to cook our food, the ones that have coating on them to make them non-stick. Those coatings are chemicals. How do we make a pan non-stick? It's coated with perfluorinated chemicals, PFAS or Teflon is the product, the historical product that people have added to 
metal to metal stainless steel to make the stainless steel pan nonstick. So guess what? Cast iron and they last forever. They can last a hundred years or stainless steel much better. When you drink your water, don't put it in a plastic to go cup. You know, those ones that you carry your water with get, get um, stainless steel or glass ones much better than the plastic ones because the plastic have P PVC or uh, bisphenol A or other kinds of coatings on them. Um, so slow, modest change is doable, especially for young people. You're learning habits. You're adopting healthy behaviors. You're working on your nutrition that becomes lifelong habits. And you may not be having a baby this year, but maybe in 10 years you will. And everything you're doing now will inform your health of your offspring and your grandchild, as we said. So really important um, for you to honor your body and to produce healthy, um, help, you know, healthy organs. And it's not just for your eggs and sperm, it's for your brain, it's for your heart, it's for your, your how you metabolize fats, how, you know, your risk of cardiovascular disease, your chances of getting menopause early versus late. Um, so many outcomes, your chances of Alzheimer's, um, dementia, they're all impacted by these chemicals. There's thousands of studies showing endpoints, adverse endpoints across the life course. I'm focused on a particular area, but there's other people that focus on other things. So these studies, are they based in humans or do they use yes. animals? They're all human studies. They're all human. They're all epidemiologic studies, which is typically epidemiology uses two kind of methodologies to study people. We study people in the, in, in, in groups. Okay. We, as I told you at the beginning, it's about studying the population. So groups. So we use observational studies designs, which is we observe in natural environments. We recruit people into a study, a cohort or a case control study where we recruit people and we follow them up over time to see what happens. And we measure exposure and outcome. There's other ways of studying. So that's observational studies. Then there's other ways of doing that. What we call experimental studies. So we take, we don't do this so much in environmental health because it's tough to do that. You can't say, I'm going to expose Patrick and everyone like Patrick, you know, men that are 27 years to 35 years to a whole bunch of phthalates. And I'm going to take another group of men and I'm going to expose them to no phthalates. And I'm going to see what happens to them in five, 10 years when they have babies. We can't do that. We can't randomly select people in our studies to give them an exposure or not give them an exposure, which is what we do for clinical trials like drugs or COVID vaccine. What did we do? We took a bunch of people, we gave them the COVID vaccine, a bunch, we didn't give, we gave them a placebo version of it. And we said, who got sick and how sick were they and who died? We followed them up and then we said, oh, the vaccine works. The people got the, va the real vaccine. So those are experimental studies. Those are the two groups of types of studies that we look at mostly. We do cross-sectional study, which is surveys as well, but there's no ideological potential in those studies. So. Yeah, these are human studies. We've tracked people. I have a study at the at the Massachusetts General Hospital Fertility Center where we recruit men and women who are trying to get pregnant. And we look at their exposures in their urine and their blood and their semen. We measure the chemicals in their urine, blood, and semen. We look at what happens to that couple. Did they get pregnant? Did they have a miscarriage? Was their baby born on time? Was their baby born small or big? Um, how many eggs did they produce? How much what was the sperm quality of that man? And we can say, wow, the men that had the highest exposure to phthalates had the lowest quality sperm and had the lowest chances of having live birth. Or in another case, I have a study that shows the women that had the highest level of phthalates in her urine had much higher risk of miscarriage. She got pregnant, but she had a three to four fold increased risk of miscarriage. So we're into the space now where we're trying to study whether or not we can measure 
a decrease in intervention. So I have a study at Boston IVF, which is an IVF clinic in Boston, where I'm recruiting couples and I'm saying, you group are going to, we're going to measure your urine at the beginning of the study. I'm going to tell you what to do. Stop using all these products that you normally have in your home. Use the products that I'm giving you because I know that they're, they have less chemicals in them. Use them for two weeks and I'm going to measure your urine over that time to see if there's a change in your exposure. So does it actually make a difference to your actual concentrations in your body if you swip, swap out these products. There's no such data yet on the intervention, but we're developing studies to look at the intervention, whether or not we can improve the concentration, reduce the body burden of these chemicals by making couples do things differently. So that's kind okay, of that's, that's, Yeah, yeah that's super interesting. I want to comment on the animal study piece because there's there's always animal data because we dose the animals in the experimental space because we could take a mouse and say, you're going to get a whole bunch of phthalates, mouse number one, and mouse number two, you're going to get no phthalates, and we're going to see who, which of these mice gets pregnant. We have lots. I don't do that animal work, but my colleagues and my peers do animal work that shows in the animal model that these chemicals are reproductive toxicants. That's how we alert people like me who do human studies go, hey, go look at the humans and see if this is also happening in humans. But it's all usually led by preliminary pre-existing data from animals that show us and tell us what's harmful, give us clues as to what we should be looking at in humans. And we've found really um, consistency in, in the data between animals and humans, that what we see in the animals to be toxic is toxic in the humans as well. And you haven't had like any cases where something's toxic to rats and then you give it to humans and it's like quite okay? Um, so that's a good question. So what's, what's relevant here is the dose, right? So, uh, you know, some people say the dose makes the poison. I don't believe that. So in animals, we dose them with much higher concentrations, right? In typical studies, like we would dose them with a high dose to see what's the really toxic effect. But we also have, um, the threshold of non, no observable effect. So where is that threshold of where the dose becomes you know, causes a complication. Um, and what we find is that even in environmentally relevant exposures in animal studies that use lower doses, we see effects that would be comparable to the exposure we'd have in humans. So that's really important to note. So people have criticized the data to say, well, the animals are getting such a high dose, of course it's toxic. But the research in, in the last 10 years has moved away from the high doses to studies that show environmentally relevant doses, meaning doses that you could expect you and me to be exposed to if we were animals, the same concentration per volume of blood or volume of urine or volume okay. of tissue. So that's important. And you said that you mostly measure the excretion of these compounds. Do you also like measure like fertility? Is there a way to, for like to get yeah. a man or a woman into the room and measure their fertility? Like how? Yeah. So we look at biomarkers of the exposure. It's a bio, it's, it's a metric, it's, it's, it's an imperfect measure, but it's what we have. So we might take a one blood sample, one urine sample. It's reflective of the exposure at that point in time. It doesn't mean that you're at that level all day and all night and every day of the week. But let's say I give a urine sample today is based on what, I, you know, what I drank, what I ate. Maybe today I didn't eat anything. So I don't have a lot of exposure. It could be um, misclassified as low, but maybe on any other day it's high. So there's issues around measurement. So we measure the urine. Let's say we look at bisphenol A, BPA. So my BPA level today is above what it should be, not even what it should be, but above the average for the population. Let's say I'm really in the high group, in the high quartile. 
And then you could look at my eggs. How many eggs are in the cycle? Or if I'm a man, what is my sperm quality, right? So how, how good is my sperm? You could look at the parameters around sperm, the concentration, the volume, the count, the motility, the morphology. You could look at these features and say, wow, the men that had the highest, what we find is the men that have the highest concentrations of these chemicals like BP and phthalates have the worst quality sperm, right? They had lower quality sperm. The women had, one of my papers published in uh, Human Reproduction, showed the women with the highest level of phthalates had the lowest number of eggs produced in her ovaries. We call it antrophollicle counts on a dose response level. So the higher the concentration of the phthalate, the lower the number of eggs she made in that cycle. Okay. So, and yeah. Yeah. And like going a little bit back, back to the, yeah. Oh, yeah. you could also uh, look at pregnancy rates. You could look at time to pregnancy. You could look at miscarriage risk. You could look at live birth rates. You could look at preterm birth. You could look at, Outcomes like autism, neurobehavior, IQ. There's studies on all these endpoints, all of them, and these chemicals, many chemicals. There's classes of chemicals. So I talked about two. Actually, I talked about four today. So I talked about phthalates. That's one class of chemicals. Phenols. Phenols is another class of chemicals. BPA goes into the phenol group, but parabens, triclosan, and benzophenone belong in the par in the phenol group. I talked about PFAS chemicals, perfluorinated chemicals. Um, those are ones that are found in, like the Teflon pan and the nonstick cookware and the pizza box that has the, the um, oil and um, waterproof um, wrappers in the hamburgers that you eat or the pizza box or the takeout food. And then I talked about flame retardants, which are put into products like mattresses to make them so that they're flame proof or certain articles of clothing might have flame retardants in them or a sofa might have a flame retardant in them. So those are kind of four big classes that I talked about. There's many others. Um, the first two phthalates and phenols, they're what we call short acting chemicals. They don't stay in our bodies very long. We metabolize them very quickly in hours three, four, five, six, seven, eight, 12 hours, the half-lives are short, but we're exposed to them constantly. So our levels kind of remain sort of stable across an entire 24 hour period. So I might drink something out of a plastic cup now. So my levels will be higher in two hours from now. And then they might go down a little bit, but then tomorrow morning I wake up and I have a huge breakfast and it's laden with phthalates. Um, it goes up again. So we're chronically and episodically exposed to phthalates and phenols. Flame retardants and um, and perfluorinated chemicals are longer longer duration chemicals. They stay in our bodies for years, months, years, decades. They last. You you get exposed to them. They don't come out of your body. They they're stuck in your blood, and they kind of get carried around for a long time. So it's hard to get rid of them once they're in our bodies, and that's problematic because then they can wreak more sort of wreak more havoc. I mean, they have more opportunities to circulate and cause damage. And so both classes the the chemicals that are long acting and the chemicals that are short acting, both classes are important for us to manage in our day-to-day -day lives. Okay, and when we talk about the excretion of these compounds, like say two people are living in a very polluted area, mm -hmm. if one person is excreting more of a given, like, I don't know, heavy metal found in the air through their urine, yeah. is, the, is that better? Does that mean like the, urine, the toxin is just passing through their body without Doing anything. So what we're measuring is the metabolism of that chemical and how our bodies metabolize it and then excrete it. You're right. So the urine, the feces, the blood, I mean, blood's not an excretion, but we can measure in feces and urine and blood, semen, um, follicular fluid, things that are in our bodies that we can access tissue. You could, you could, 
you could dissect my ovaries right now in a biopsy, take a tissue sample of my ovaries right now, and you could detect phthalates in that ovary. Phthalates bind to ovarian tissue and testicle tissue. So you can actually take it out of the organ itself. But what we're measuring is how it's in our bloodstream and how it gets metabolized through our kidneys and liver and into our urine, okay? So no, the more you're collecting in the urine, if you are at a higher level, means the more exposure of the parent compound you have coming into your body. And it's usually a reflection of your metabolism of that chemical. So you're picking it up in the matrix, the biomatrix, which is blood, urine, semen, whatever you're taking, the biological matrix. Okay, that yeah clarifies my question. So the more the more you excrete, the more basically it's being metabolized and coming through. So the more you've been exposed to the, the chemical. Very good. Yeah. Okay, and then I was reading a book the uh, like a few months ago, and the author mentioned like when you have like pasta in recycled cardboard with like mm. without any plastic between like the something in the cardboard can leach into the pasta. Yeah. Do, do, do you know yeah. what I'm talking? Uh-huh. I do know what you're talking about. So one of the very sad, complicated spaces in this space of being exposed to chemicals, environmental exposures, is that we feel good when we're buying recycled paper and recycled things that are in recycled packaging. I'm like, yay, I'm doing something great for the environment. I have my pasta or my whatever you're getting, food source that's packaged in recycled paper. Let's say you're going to the, you know, going to the deli and you're getting bacon or you're getting cut meats and you're putting it in recycled paper. It's great, right? But no, because what's recycled paper? It's an, it's it's a it's taking what's in the environment and mashing it together and reconfiguring it into another product, right? But the parent source of that original product was made up of a whole bunch of things. And the recycling paper doesn't mean it's not exposed. It's, it's it's not clean necessarily. It's not it's not low toxicity just because it's recycled. It could be actually very high toxicity because it's got, it could be made from newspapers. It could be made from um, papers that have coloring in it, um, papers that are coated with plastic because, you know, you go to get something that's shiny and beautiful, you know, a pamphlet, for example, that's got a nice color on it and it's got shininess on it. Well, those are chemicals. And now you recycle that paper and you turn it into paper that you go and put your food in, the cardboard. And then there's transference. It's these, these are not covalently bonded to, like the, there's transference, there's migration into the food from that product. And if it sticks, you put the pasta or the meat or whatever on that thing, there's contact, there's food contact, right, on that paper. And there's transference of that paper into the food, it migrates into the food. The longer it sits on there, the more transference there is. So you go and buy bacon. I hate buying bacon, although my kids love it. And I make bacon for them all the time. It comes in these Trunk wrap plastic, you know, plastic. It's, pl it's plastic bags. It's like it's got it's vacuum sealed and it's very tight. And then in the plastic bag, that's vacuum sealed is a coated cardboard that's got a film on it so that the grease from the bacon um, doesn't sort of make the paper go rot, right? So the paper that's in that's wrapped in the bacon then that's in the plastic is covered in perfluorinated chemicals, PFAS chemicals, because it's oil PFAS. The reason why they're so popular in our environment, why companies use them to manufacture things is because it stops oil and water from seeping into the paper. So you get a paper that's coated with PFAS, then you put food on it and the PFAS gets into the food because it migrates out. And it's a major source is processed food, any type of processed food or, or food in a 
you know, McDonald's, I'm using McDonald's, but any, any, any burger joint, any French fry place, any pizza place, all that packaging that you get your processed takeout food in is, is coated in flame returns and PFAS chemicals and phthalates. Okay. Thanks for clarifying that. And so, yeah, we'll move on to the last few questions. So thanks again for your time. And uh, when a woman is actually pregnant, like I've heard like there's like some viruses in cats which can pass on to pregnant women. I don't know if you've heard about this or not. Oh, yes. Okay, that's right. The um, uh, toxoplasmosis. I think that's the one, yeah. And like that could potentially be dangerous, I think, from what I've read. But is there anything that like a pregnant woman should like avoid or do in addition once the once she's already pregnant? Well, as I said to you, you need to start before you get pregnant. So that's key number one is when you're planning a pregnancy, for those that have the opportunity to plan a pregnancy, a lot of pregnancies are not planned, is that you take steps to improve your health and your partner's health. And once you are pregnant, when you identify the pregnancy, if it's planned, you might identify it at the four, five, six, seven week mark. Um, well, you have to start, you have to reduce your exposure if you have control over it. For example, the things that I mentioned, like the products that you put in your, in your hair, on your face, the makeup, skin cream, the sunscreens, the toothpaste, um, the mouth rinse, the, you know, oral mouth rinse that you use. Those are things that you can just decrease the number of products you use on your body per day is the number one thing you do. Like if you use 10 products a day, go to five, just cut down. I'm speaking with lipstick on my mouth right now because I have this thing, but, but you have to decrease the the products that you put on your body or put products like skin lotion. I like skin lotion, but I have a, I use things like coconut oil, um, things that are, you know, less exposed to chemicals. There's products you can use that are cheap. Coconut oil is cheap. You can use it as a moisturizer or almond oil. You can use it on your skin. Um, shampoos, conditioners, deodorants, toothpaste, oral rinse, lipstick. These are all sources of exposure. You know, these are easy, easy, easier ways of cutting down. Just simply stop using stuff detox yourself. There's apps to do that. There's a talk app, app called detox me. There's another app called Clearia. Um, that's, I don't know if it's usable in the United, in, uh, in Europe, but it's usable in the United States. So it helps you pick better products. Um, the EWG, the environmental working group is a website that categorizes and lists dozens, hundreds and hundreds of products and lists them as being high risk, low risk, medium risk in terms of how exposed, how much chemicals are in them. And they'll say harmful to fetus, harmful to pregnancy. Um, so, you know, information, education, and this is why I do these podcasts and doing a lot more of them is because there are opportunities to reach out to, you know, to the, the individuals that I want my information to be helpful to. And without talking about it, getting in podcasts and having people digest the information, nobody will know to, you know, change, swap out the product. Um, it's a way of impacting, um, the health of the population is through education and awareness and consumer choice changes and behavior changes in your lifestyle. Um, so yeah. Okay. And how have you looked like into the blue zones as part of your work? Cause like, for example, some of the blue zones, they do stuff which gives them high exposure to chemicals. For example, like in Okinawa and Japan, they eat lots of fish and rice almost like three times a day, yeah. which is heavy in like arsenic, the rice or mercury in the fish. Well, why, why are they, they living so long? Yeah. They have the longest life expectancy is what you're saying, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, it's a bit of a paradox is what you're thinking. And uh, it's correct. There is a bit of a paradox there because fish is highly contaminated with mercury and perfluorinated chemicals. 
yet the people who eat the most fish have a longest life expectancy. I don't know how their fertility is, but their life expectancy is high. Um, so what we know and what's really important here is this is the, I'm glad you're bringing this up because it's one of the things that I like to focus on is take away the chemicals. Yes, that's one strategy, but improve your nutrition is by far the best thing you can do. Exercise, healthy habits, sleep well, exercise and improve your nutrition, eat good foods, eat lots of fish because the effect, what we've seen in the literature with fish consumption is the benefits of fish outweigh the risks of the chemicals that you're getting from that fish. There's so many benefits to eating seafood that the nutrients and the fatty acids, the omega fatty acids in the fish are so beneficial to your health that it counteraffects the, the, the effect of these chemicals on the body. So they kind of balance each other out where there's a protective effect from the fish. Um, that's what the research shows, the human research shows. Um, but eating, eating good fruits and vegetables, eating less processed foods, taking supplements if necessary, these are all so important. So even if you are going to be exposed, making sure your body can deal with those exposures by harnessing the benefit of your nutrition. So we have some studies that show that PFAS, the chemicals that we talked about that are in the flame, uh, that are in the um, oil and stain resistant uh, food contact material and that type of thing, that we find that the effects of those chemicals, the PFAS chemicals are only found, the harmful effects, we observe them in those that have low folic acid in their bodies. The people who have high folic acid in their bodies, the PFAS seems to not impact them in a negative way. So in other words, we can mitigate the effect of a chemical by having good nutrition. That's the message there. That's the takeaway message. Improving your nutrition, even if you are exposed to all these things, having a good nutrition will block out some of those effects that can decrease your inflammation, deal with free radicals, deal with deal with some of the effects that we're talking about. So healthy nutrition, and, and even more so that there's evidence that sometimes they co- compete for binding space. So on the receptors, if you have folic acid that's on the receptor, then the PFAS can't get in, for example. So it's transport, it helps PFAS blocks the transport of P, sorry, the folic acid blocks the transport of PFAS into your body. So we don't know what the, all the answers are, but definitely hundred percent key messages, eat good foods, eat lots of fruits and vegetables, lots of leafy greens, increase your B vitamin consumption through dark leafy things, increase your vitamin C, increase your vitamin A, have a healthier diet. A natural, more healthier diet with less processed food is the best thing you can do. Best thing you do and swapping up products. You've covered enormous opportunity there if you can do those two things. Swap out a dozen things in your environment and eat better. Just make better choices and start small. You know, start, and it doesn't have to be all organic. Just eat more fruits and vegetables. Just eat them. Replace the, you know, the, you know, the bag of chips with, I don't know, an apple or mm. carrots or carrots with hummus or something else. I mean, I like chips too, so I'm criticizing chips, but I do eat them. Um, my point is like overall your diet, if you can improve it, is really important. And I focus that enormously in my, in my home and with my children and my family is diet is the number one thing you do. Spend money on good food and well, the takeout thing is a problem, especially during COVID because everybody resorted to takeout for everything. And it's a, you know, it's, it's an area that we need to be mindful of how much we consume that's processed and prepared for us because they all come in plastic containers. Mm, yeah. Ones that are coated with PFAS, both are no-nos. 
Yeah. And so, yeah, folic acid, that's an interesting one because it's actually also, I think uh, I've read that it's important for pregnant women to avoid like uh, spinal deformities. Yeah. So, that's one of the so, major reasons I recommend it is because the research showing around uh, spine, spina bifida and other sort of complications relating to pregnancy um, and pregnancy loss. So folic acid supplementation before pregnancy and during pregnancy is a critical thing you could do to help improve your chances of getting pregnant and having a healthy baby. And natural sources for your diet is obviously ideal, but supplementation is required, um, especially in pregnancy. Um, and it's cheap, affordable vitamin that you could take, um, supplement that you could take, and um, and eating just better, eating better as much as we can is really important. Even if the food's um, contaminated, you know, our meats are contaminated, our pesticides and our fruits and vegetables might still be there, but there's so many benefits to the diet being um uh, having nutrients and micronutrients that are really important for dealing with some of these effects. For people who are wondering where they can find folic acid off the top of my head, I think whole grains are a good source and nuts. Nuts and dark leafy vegetables as well. Okay, yeah. very good. So I had a, few, a read of a few of the papers on the website. There's a lot of interesting stuff. So things related to like sugar sweetened beverages, even underwear, the different uh, yeah, materials, men wear for underwear, that has an effect, even sleep time. I, I was surprised to see that men that sleep too much actually even have like a, that has a negative impact on their yeah. fertility. So sleep, yeah, so sleep's a great one to talk about because it seems like something that's so passive, right? But too little sleep affects our cortisol production and our hormone production, our bodies. It dysregulates our circadian rhythm. It affects our production of eggs and sperm. So too little sleep is problematic, but too much sleep, we don't, we don't know if the too much sleep has something to do with confounding, which is basically are the people who are sleeping too much doing other things, right? Maybe they have depression, maybe they smoke marijuana, maybe they have other issues that make, maybe they don't exercise or could be confounding, which is factors that are related to sleep, that it's not really the sleep that's the issue. So we're not sure about that finding, but there's consistency in the literature that too little and too much sleep can impact your fertility. Okay, so if someone wants to read more about your work, uh, what, what, do you have like any uh, links you could send them to? Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at, uh, at Dr. Masterlian, which is my last name. And we have a website, seedprogram.co, seedprogram.co. Um, we have all of our papers in PDFs listed on there so people can get access to them. And more importantly, we've produced under the resource tab, um, a, a plethora, a dozen or more pamphlets on all the different topics that we talked about. Um, things from how to adolescents reduce their exposure back to school, couples trying to get pregnant, how to reduce your exposure, what are PFAS, what are phenols, what are phthalates, a lot of educational materials on there that people can access and download for free. So that's a good way of just as, as prompts and reminders of the things that we talked about today. And you can access okay. those on seedprogram.co under the tab resources and they're downloadable for free and share them, share them, share okay. the link, share the website. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'll put everything in the description to the podcast. So just to round up, we learned the five or so main types of, uh, environmental toxicants. It's, uh, the, uh, the phthalates, the phenols, the flame retardants, and then the Teflon and then the PFAS. The PFAS nice. and Teflon are the same. They're in the same group. So PFAS is Teflon. Is one, Teflon is one type of PFAS. And then you could say, you know, heavy metals is another group in general. 
Um, we didn't talk about that. Pesticides would be another group of chemicals. So there's multiple different ones, but um, you covered the main ones that we talked about. Those are the ones that I study the most. Okay, thank you so much, Carmen, for donating your time and sharing the, the knowledge, sure. giving some added value. Yes, I hope that your listeners uh, follow us on Instagram at Dr. Misterling or at Seed Program. You can put that on the website and, um, and download our resources off the web. I encourage everyone to. It's a way of getting educated and pass the word on. Okay, great. Then, yeah, take care. Have a good uh, afternoon. Thank you, Patrick. Have a Bye -bye. great afternoon.